Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello. Uh, we're doing the nose. Uh, we're live here on Friday afternoon. I hope you're live here on Friday afternoon. But whenever you're listening, uh, we're about to talk about, I think, maybe one of the more addictive pieces of television uh, available to us this summer. New. It's called Ozark. It's on Netflix. It has uh, an interesting cast uh, and a in- very interesting uh, premise. A little bit later in the show, we will share our remembrances or our favorite things about the late Sam Shepard. Uh, and we will also talk in a very abstract way about Sharknado 5. I mean, the problem being most of us have not seen the first four Sharknados, um, although some of us have seen little bits and pieces of Sharknados, which is the best way to consume them, and it's the best way for sharks to consume people, too, in bits and pieces. Um, so joining us today is a fabulous panel. Rich Holland is a principal and design director at CoLab. Rebecca Castellani is a queen of the Andals, uh, lord of the north, and entertainment director at Bridge Street Live in Canton, Connecticut. And Susan Campbell is the author. She's many other things besides this, but she's the author of the upcoming Searching for the American Dream in Frog Hollow. Pre-order it now at your favorite independent bookstore. Can the people pre-order it? <laughs> no, no, but that's nice okay. thought. <laughs> okay, just make a note to yourself. You can't pre-order it, but you can make a note to yourself. People still do that. Um, so, and one of the reasons uh, I wanted uh, Susan to be on today is because well, first of all, because she was fulminating uh, about Ozark, uh, this uh, new Netflix series on Facebook, and also because having sat next to her at work or across from her at work, depending on our desk configuration at the time, for nine years, I know that she has some strong feelings about how certain, a certain part of the country and a certain kind of person, sometimes referred to as a hillbilly, is portrayed in popular culture. And that is one of the things that this treats of. So before we uh, plunge in, uh, let me just quickly try to set the premise here. So uh, Jason Bateman plays Marty Bird. Marty Bird is a seemingly kind of harmless, uh, middle-of-the-road kind of person, except that his big secret is he's been laundering money. None of this is, by the way, is that we're not going to do any bad spoilers. This is just what rolls you into the first episode. Uh, he's been laundering money uh, for a drug cartel, some very dangerous people. And his relationship with that drug cartel goes pretty seriously south right at the beginning of the first episode. Uh, it's ultimately going to require him and his family to relocate to the Lake of the Ozarks, uh, where uh, Marty has, because he is a great improviser, decided that he can do even greater work for the Mexican drug cartel, which is currently very unhappy with certain aspects of his work. Um, and uh, we're, you're going to hear here an episode, a, a part of the first episode in which Marty, because he has to leave Chicago with his family, his wife played Wendy, played by Laura Linney, and her, his two children, um, they're going to have to leave suddenly. And they're going to have to reconstitute their lives in this new area. So he goes into a Chicago bank for the purpose of withdrawing essentially all the money he has in the bank. And here's what that sounds like. Good to see you, sir. Yeah. Can I get you a cup of coffee? No, thank you. Am I under duress? No. What are you doing? No, there's been... No, stop that. There's been no kidnapping. I'm not wearing any wires. I just... I have a um, a business opportunity that requires cash. Sir, there's no business opportunities that require that much cash. Not legal ones. Well, I agree to disagree. 
Where's my money? As we told you, we can't cover that amount within 24 hours. Okay. There's two federal agents here, which means you wouldn't take the chance that there was a kidnapping and not have my money. So if you don't produce it immediately, I'm gonna walk into that lobby and I'm gonna tell these people that I can't get my money out. And we'll see how long that takes to go viral and you get a good old fashioned run on this bank. And if I wanna put all $7,945,400 into a hot tub, get buck naked and play Scrooge McDuck, that is 100% my business. Now where's my money? All right. So before we get into some of the meaty issues around this, I mean, are we all uh, I'll st- I just want to go around the table. Are we all at least in agreement that that pulse pounding music that we hear behind that scene pretty much approximates our reaction to this series? I mean, everybody got, I think everybody here got the hooked, right? of it. Yep. Yeah. Every yeah. second of it is has that undertone. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's no happy music. It's all, "Oh my god, something's around the corner." And and, and did you in fact were you hooked for the duration? I only really I was. I, I originally wasn't going to watch it because, oh, my God, I can tell you how this is going to look. Mm. And then New York Times gave it a kind of a tepid, yeah, and I thought, well, now I have to watch it. You know, <laughs> now I want to see if they're right. So, yes, I, I, I was hooked pretty mm. quickly. And, Rebecca, you did pretty much what I did, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. sacrificed. Uh, that heartbeat sound of adrenaline yeah. was kind of what I was doing the whole time. I watched <laughs> the whole thing in two days, which right. was really sad, but it was awesome. <laughs> I think it took me four or five, but yeah, very bingeable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Any amount of discretionary time I had went into finishing this series. So I, I, I do want to begin with you, Susan, because uh, one of the big questions about this is, does this in some way enlarge upon or improve upon the way this particular sector of American society is often portrayed. I mean, are we, have we have we moved beyond? I don't. I don't even know. Well, first of all, what's the most offensive portrayal of "quote unquote" hillbillies? Oh God, there's so many. Uneducated and stupid, or educated but still stupid. Married their cousins, no teeth, uh, no shoes. I was actually thinking of a specific. Oh, thing. I'm just like, summing them all up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so like deli- have, deliverance takes place in Georgia, right? Those aren't hillbillies, so they're not ours. Yeah. So that that's okay. They can say whatever they want to about them. I will say that, and I have given this way too much thought. As with the Beverly Hillbillies, the uh, denizens of the Lake of the Ozarks come off to me in the beginning as, oh my God, here we go again. But they have a native intelligence that I appreciate, and they can't be taken advantage of quite as easily as Jason Bateman's character appears to think. Right. I mean, I think that that's kind of true across the board. I mean, we are rich in particular introduced to a young woman named Ruth, uh, people who are familiar with the actress Julia Julia Gardner? Gardner, Gardner. Yeah. Yeah, she's uh, on The Americans uh, most recently. But um, – and she she plays – a very young woman indigenous to this area, to the Lake of the Ozarks, who's every bit uh, this the intellectual and scheming equal of Mr. Bateman or Mr. Bird, who's no slouch himself. Yeah, she's she's shrewd. Um, uh, she assesses what her risks are uh, in a manner that's uh, a lot more on beat than the guy whose job it is to be a risk assessor. Um, and uh, so, so get, I, to me, she is uh, she is this series. Um, I if there were a spinoff on this, I would watch this for hours a day. Uh, she's you know completely magnetic, and um, and her ethics are the most complicated ethics that um, that I've ever seen visualized. And I buy into it a hundred percent. I mean, um, where her loyalties lie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
I mean, you'd have to see it. I don't want to ruin it. Uh, but just if you watch this movie and you watch where her loyalties lie, it's really phenomenal. Um, th- this movie to me, this sort, sorry, the series talks a lot about tr- the choices that we make and um, and uh, how uh, they're interconnected and that they define, uh, you know, what our human experience is going to be and what we will amount to in the end. And uh, to see the choices that she makes in process um, is just incredibly, incredibly phenomenal. That's a really interesting way of putting it. I hadn't really thought about it. But in a way, a lot of the people in this series don't have a lot of flexibility in making choices. I mean, the birds are essentially just trying to keep things together and they're improvising as they go under the threat of incredible violence if they improvise wrong. Um, Ruth might be the, the character, Rebecca, who has a pretty interesting interesting setting, set of choices to make. Absolutely. I mean, Rich is right. The word shrewd really sums her up for me. She's able to take in her surroundings. She's got the lay of the land in a way that the birds are never going to have. And she uses all these pieces to her advantage in a way to me. I mean, she's, she's what, 19 years old, a young 19-year-old girl. And she acts more like an adult in her decision making and these sophisticated thought processes than Marty Bird, who is very much dictated by a lot of his passions and his feelings and his ignorance. And she doesn't have those same holdbacks. She's very able to assess what's going on and make these very cold clinical decisions that are still very much informed by family. And to me, that was what made her a really fleshed out character and not just this is this ruthless young woman who's able to grab and grab and get whatever she needs because that's her lot in life. But she does have these complicated loyalties that shift almost every episode and you can't quite pin down where she is episode to episode and it just makes for an incredibly compelling watch. She was far and away my favorite character. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to also talk, I want to talk a little bit about women in this series. And so, I mean, the other main woman that we're getting to know is Wendy, wife of Marty Bird, uh, played by Laura Linney uh, in a, the kind of extended performance I've wanted to see Laura Linney do for a, a bunch of years here. Um, it, this is also not a spoiler. This is just like right here at the beginning of the series. It turns out that the other kind of secret that's going on in the Bird family is a much more pedestrian one than laundering money for a drug cartel. Uh, Wendy is having an affair. Uh, and uh, this is something that follows her around for the rest of the series uh, and particularly in terms of uh, Marty uh, who turns out to be the unforgiving type uh, about this kind of thing. Anyway, let's hear a little bit of um, of Wendy and Marty uh, talking about uh, – a little bit about the affair and a little bit also just about what are we going to tell the kids. What's our story for the kids? What do you mean? Well, th- they see this this polite dance that we're doing in front of them. They they hear the constant edge in your voice. Well, we could tell them the truth, Wendy. How would that be? Oh, you know what, Marty? Before you get too comfortable up there on your cross and have your pity party, let me just let me just jog your memory for a minute. There was an innocent man who was murdered. Gary. He was a good man. He, he only did good things in this world, not like Bruce. Gary was a father. He had two grown sons. I never met them, but I, I know he loved them. And he was thrown off his balcony. For what? People cheat. They have sex with people who they aren't married to. It happens. It's not unique. 
So one of my biggest questions about this whole series, uh, and Susan, I'll start with you about this, is there's a way in which Marty can't forgive um, his wife, Wendy, for this act of infidelity, even though there are things happening right now that are much more earth-shattering and threatening to the family and to everybody's lives than, than this. And one of the things that I tr- couldn't really decide is whether or not the series can forgive Wendy. There's a way in which the series, the script writers, the director, you know, are constantly inviting us to think that there's something wrong with Marty that he can't let go of this thing. But there's also, I, I feel like this whole series has a kind of pitiless eye uh, on Wendy too, that it also somehow or other won't let go of this thing. I, 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 and I don't. some of that might be Linny's performance too. I, I don't know. How, what's your read on that? I didn't get that impression that the series was nailing her um, on the cross herself for what she did. Um, I got the impression that absolutely Marty can't move on. It it looks like he might at some point, but I more got the impression that she's every bit as big and good a grifter as he is and able to fit into any role possible. And I think it's a wonderful performance. And Mm -hmm. I don't look at her as an object of pity or she doesn't have the big A on her chest. She's moving on. So to me, in that scene that we just played, the the turning point where Linny actually, to me, was let off the hook was the statement that uh, that Marty made to her immediately after that, um, which well, since we played so much of it, and we know that her that her lover died. Um, the sta- he made a statement to her after she just poured her heart out to him, you know, and was as raw as you know, and you heard it, but to see her perform it is a whole other thing. Um, and he made a statement to her, something to the effect of the moment that he heard that guy's head hit the sidewalk, right. that that was the best moment of, <laughs> of, the, of his life at that point. That's true. Um, I've and, uh, she slaps him. Oh, yeah, a I couple of times. Yeah. Open um, hand. Yeah. And there was, there was something about that moment that defined that, – that transcended um, to her point – the things that we do and got to who we are, mm-hmm. you know, and and it redefined uh, the the rest of the show from that point for me to not about what we do, but who are we at our essence. Mm-hmm. And so in that regards, I think that she was completely let off the hook. I, 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 first of all, I think that's all really good and really true, although it's not as though that's the end of it, you know. In other words, this the script comes back to this question again and again. The, uh, another script at the end of those two slaps might have said, all right, that's as much as we're going to get out of this particular topic. But the, the, the script comes back to it over and over again. And I, 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 I'm not really pushing this one way or another, but I, I was interested in the portrayal of women in this thing. Women are very strong in many cases in this thing. You can make the argument that Wendy almost has a better grip on what's going on than Marty does. Um, we've, we've talked a little bit, little, bit, little bit about Ruth, who's really this very smart bootstraps sociopath who, on the one hand, is really admirable in the sense that she's, you know, she's interested in bettering herself. But she's either, depending on your point of view, a cold-blooded killer or at least murder curious. Uh, and <laughs> That's going to go viral, murder curious. <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, we've got uh, this other couple, the Snells, who are uh, up in the hills a little bit and they have their own criminal enterprise and he – uh, is in many ways this very stolid um, uh, and and I don't know a man of few words and 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 doesn't show his hand very much, but his wife really is 
kind of a bloodthirsty maniac, <laughs> sometimes gratifyingly, but she's the one with a wild look in her eye who might do anything at any minute. And so I don't know, Rebecca, I was sort of wondering about this, whether this series is tough on women or not afraid to present us with women as the, the actors, the sure. people who, you know... I mean, I think in a lot of ways it reverses these traditional gender roles that are assigned to a lot of characters. The women behave in traditionally more masculine roles. Mrs. Snell is the one who's very violent. Mr. Snell wants to talk stuff through more. Wendy is able to become very ruthless very fast. And Wendy in particular, I think the most important episode for her arc was the flashback episode that comes towards the end of the series, Kaleidoscope, that shows some of her backstory 10 years prior and the transition she's made from being a woman without a place unfulfilled in her marriage, unfulfilled by raising children, can't get a job because she's been out of work for a few years. And to see how that 10 years on, she's able to take this this world shattering news that her husband's laundering money and they've got to flee. And instead of having this complete meltdown, she pulls herself up by her bootstraps, gets everyone in control. My favorite, and I don't think this is really a spoiler either, my favorite scene for her was when she just straight up tells the children exactly mm-hmm. what's going on. There's no, none of this... Walter White trying to hide everything from his family. All the family's on board. The the young teenage daughter is very, you know, she doesn't have a teenage meltdown about it. She doesn't go off and tell her parents' secrets. She plays right into it. So I do think there's a certain strength that's afforded to these women that I don't see very often in television shows. And I don't think it's necessarily them being harsh on the women. I think it's just a refreshing take on the traditional role in this. And Marty tends to be the one who's a little more emotional, a little more hung up on the affair. He's not willing to to let that go as much as the female characters are able to kind of move past some of the emotional baggage. There's something about Marty's character, though, that um, the the emotional as the emotional aspect uh, that he portrays also feels strategic. Yeah, you know, it it feels to me it, as with all of his responses to the universes that he's in that he's constantly playing. At, you know, trying to figure out what the uh, what the risk reward. He's playing uh, an emotional game, like absolutely. a traditional feminine role would be more so mm-hmm. than the aggressor. That's, that's an interesting point. I, I think you you nailed something there. Well, so comparisons to Breaking Bad, I think, are in, mm-hmm. inevitable yes. here, and um, each series is about a rather normal looking man who turns out to be a sociopath, um, and. When I was writing about Breaking Bad, I was unsettled to encounter this large male fan base that did not regard Walter White as a monster, uh, but regarded him as kind of this. And said Skyler was the monster. Exactly, yes. Walter White, so if you've never heard of Breaking Bad, Walter White is this former chemistry teacher, high school chemistry teacher, who becomes a meth kingpin. Um, And yes, uh, there were people who were very critical on social media of his wife, Skyler, calling her basically an unsupportive bitch because she wasn't supporting his (laughs) drug. Kingpin <laughs> behavior, uh, but he was really kind of regarded by some people as this kind of American Nietzsche, you know, this this independent guy standing up to the man and yeah. self-actualized and making his own destiny. And so, Susan, I mean, as we look at the, the, this particular series, <laughs> I, I, you know, everybody's kind of a monster, right? With just a very few exceptions. Charlotte, the daughter you've mentioned, the world's oldest 15-year-old. Um, and and there's a woman named Rachel who runs the Blue Cat. She seems like a fairly normal person. Um, the Oddly enough, the sheriff of this area seems to be like kind of a regular guy who just can't believe he's surrounded by so many Oh, but he's people. on the take. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think they're monsters. And, and oh, maybe, that's where I wanted to go. Yeah, I don't think they're monsters. And my standard of calling someone a sociopath is way low or higher than yours because I don't look at um, – 
Julia Garner's character as a sociopath. I look at her as living in a world of situational ethics, and I thought your point, Rich, about her being able to shift her loyalties to go in one particular case to shift her loyalties outside of her family yes. was stunning to me, mm-hmm. and it spoke of her character, yeah. not that she was a monster. Um, I I don't think they're monsters. I think they're entertaining as all get out yes. uh, and not realistic, but I the sheriff's on the take. This family's bemoaning the fact that their farm was flooded. Oh, my God. You can hear those stories out there all the time. It's boring. And, yes, you lost the Civil War. Move the hell on. (laughs) But there's that family. So they've decided to be criminal in nature with the the, the wife who's freaky Mm -hmm. in her violence. Um, But I don't know. I don't think of them as monsters because every one of them at some point, maybe a couple of them know, have some redeeming quality. Like there's a scene where you go, oh, or where I would sit there and think, oh, okay. Like I'm not tense watching her, uh, Julia Garner's character, interact with her cousins. Mm-hmm. Oh, they love each other. That's nice. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm able to, I don't know, so, be entertained. So, so I'm going to make the people of color statement to this. Um, Are you representing? I, I am representing Got it. all of us. Um <laughs> The Mexicans were the monsters in this. Everybody else, you could kind of understand the condition that they found themselves in. Yep. Mm-hmm. But and the Mexicans were the monsters. And when that didn't pan out, the response was, oh, well, they'll just send more Mexicans. Mm-hmm. You know, And there, there is something embedded in that that I didn't really like very much at Absolutely. all. And I can say watching it as a hillbilly, I'm thinking, oh, my God, if I was Mexican, this would be so old and tired to mm-hmm. me. Oh, look, the Mexican drug cartel. Well, of course. Especially because they painted Dell, who's the central villain, really interesting. I was very competitive held by him. I wanted to figure out his motivations. The first episode, he tells this this anecdotal story about a, a family member stealing money from a till, and that kind of becomes his barometer of judging the people he works with. And I thought he was... I, that first episode, I thought we were going to get so much more out of him, and it was going to be so much interesting. And they kind of threw the character away and just replaced it with as rich as yeah. more Mexicans and the yeah. ambiguous, baddie cartel Mexicans that don't really wear. They're not souls wearing flesh; they're just props, and mm. that yeah. was frustrating. But and, I, I, and sadistic on top of that, yeah, because yeah. there comes a point in which you know these these folks are making some headway in in what they need to accomplish. Yeah, and uh, and he just kind of shows up and cranks up the temperature, cranks up the timeline. You know, does stuff uh, to to interject things that accelerate the tension in in this piece for no particular reason other than you know because the Mexicans are evil. Plot um, okay, so yeah. I, I want to go back to Marty Bird. This is the character who's played by Jason Bateman. Um, and just once again, for those of you who haven't seen this series yet, but just a reminder: he's uh, a Chicago accountant who essentially of his own volition, just becomes a money launderer for a drug cartel. And, and so if he's not a monster, um, I, I want to talk about why that is. I mean, it's sort of the Macbeth question, right? You know, um, is Macbeth always a monster whose latent monstrosity is just essentially undercovered? Or is Macbeth essentially a victim of a series of twists and turns which place him ultimately in a position where he does something monstrous? You know, this is like a gigantic question probably runs through literature. Mm-hmm. I look at Marty and I think, I don't really know how you become a Mexican drug cartel kingpin. It's probably, you do a lot of pretty horrible things, but I don't know how you get started on that. But I sort of know how Marty gets started. He makes a whole series of choices, which for the most part are 
are sociopathic in nature, right? He decides that he's going to do this thing. He's going to deal with evil people who are in an evil business that mm-hmm. leaves uh, an evil a trail of uh, of broken lives and 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 premature deaths. You know, I mean, I think Marty is a monster. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that Macbeth, a lot of bad stuff happens to him, but it's that original first choice he makes that sets everything else into motion. So it, ultimately, it wasn't like Marty got conned into doing this. He made the choices, adult male choices, to participate in this. And and, and I think that the unfolding of the story here helps yes. that as well. Because we get we are knee-deep in uh, the... the um, the ramifications of the choices that he makes within the first 20 yeah. minutes of this series. It's very in media race. It starts right yeah, in the thick of it. You're right deep in the middle of it. And somewhere, you know, around episode six or seven or so of these of these first 10 episodes, we start getting a sense of how Marty got to mm-hmm. make the decision that he made. Um, I, I don't think that I would make those decisions, <laughs> you know, looking at the life that he already had. Yes. You know, I mean, I understand the decisions that the folks who are living in a trailer in the Ozark are making. Um, but considering, you know, the – you know, may, maybe it's just part of my, my idea that let's all get to this sort of minimum base of what we all have and everything else is gravy. He is well past that minimum base of what mm-hmm. we should all have. He's greedy. Yeah. He said yeah. the f- opening monologue of the show is him moving mm-hmm. money from one place to another and talking all about his relationship to money and how the pursuit of money comes above everything mm-hmm. else for him, above family. He uses that when he's he does this great scene where he's trying to psych himself up to confront his wife and he's like, and I've worked all day. I could have had all these f- affairs, but I've worked, I've worked, I've made all this money, I've worked. And it's like, oh, Marty, get we should, we should say there is something very comical about yeah, it's Jason all, Bateman. <laughs> about all this stuff. You know, like almost everything that's scary has kind of a funny little moment to it. Mm-hmm. Even the little soliloquy that we heard Laura Linney talk about this former lover of hers who's who's dead. And she says, and he had adult sons. I, I never met them. <laughs> but he loved <laughs> you know? them. Yeah. But um, just last question. We really have to move on to the next thing. And this is a big can of worms I'm about to open up. But maybe, Uh-oh. Susan, you can just sort of get us through it really quickly. One of, I mean, every, every time now, so the difference between, say, Justified, which is also a little bit like this, and Ozark, is that now, every time we look at something like this, we do have to ask ourselves questions about the big orange elephant in the room and the 2016 election. And so... I like I, when I used to watch Justified, I never thought, well, those are probably people who feel as though you know they're not getting their share of the American dream, so they have to do these things, and they'll probably vote for some really inappropriate person for president someday. But now I, I'm sort of wondering whether it's necessary or even useful to read a series like Ozark that way and say, well, I guess we're looking at some of the people who ultimately thought they had to make some. I, my sense is the Snells, they're the people who grow poppies up in the hills, don't vote. I was Why would say, they vote? My sense is many of those people didn't vote and, and there is no excuse. Why create another paper trail by yeah, voting? Why, no, it's the government. So there's not a – I don't know what the voting turnout is in that part of Missouri. I, I You know, it's, it's low everywhere. But no, I would not use – Ozark as an explanation for why Donald Trump is our president. All right. We have to go take a break right now. We've got to come back. We're going to talk about Sam Shepard. We might talk a little bit about Sharknado, which one of our regular panelists, Carolyn Payne, this is going to be like the centerpiece of her summer, Sharknado 5.
We are back. Welcome back to The Nose. Special hello to Charlie Cameron, who's our guest producer today, along with the uh, regular production team here. And uh, we're talking to Susan Campbell, the author of the upcoming bestseller, Searching for the American Dream in Frog Hollow. Rebecca Castellani is uh, Queen of the Endels, uh, Warden of the North, and Entertainment Director at Bridge Street Live in Canton. Rich Holland is uh, Principal and Design Director at CoLab. So on Monday, we got the news that Sam Shepard had died. Um, Our Monday scramble often is intended to react to breaking news. There's so much breaking news these days. And I said to Jonathan, we just we can't remake the show at this point to get Sam Shepard in there. But we also thought, well, people will – there's a lot of things going on and maybe things like this don't get the proper treatment. And it would be at least interesting to talk to the people on the nose about what their most memorable Sam Shepard moment is, whether it's a, a role that he played or a play that he wrote or maybe some other thing that he symbolizes. Um, Rich, I'm going to start with you and I'm going to set you up here with a clip from The Right Stuff where, in awesome. fact, uh, Sam Shepard played uh, Chuck Yeager, Chuck Yeager, the test pilot, the real-life test pilot who was too cool and too daring to really want to be an astronaut. Hey, Ridley. Yeah. You got any beamings? I might have me a stick. Well, loan me something, would you? I'll pay you back later. Fair enough. Think I see a plane over here with a name on it. Now you talk. This turns out to be a mildly superstitious ritual that these two men have. Every time Chuck Yeager takes a plane up, they have that conversation about the stick of Beeman's gum. So, Rich, take it away. Okay, so they did that three times in this movie, and each time the the risks grew. Um, uh, if I recall correctly, the, the thing with Yeager is it wasn't so much that he didn't want to be uh, an astronaut, but he didn't have the education to be an astronaut. Um, that they were picking guys that uh, that were all sort of college grads and um, and had a, a level of elitism um, that he as a as a sort of common hero uh, didn't possess. Uh, he wasn't the the bow tied uh, John Glenn at all. Uh, he was he was another character. He played another character. And I think uh, in our exchanges, I was like, I think he played the, a character that got out of the Ozark and ended up on uh, as a as a test pilot uh, where um, the value of his life uh, came down to uh, um, his willingness to put it on the line all the time chasing uh, chasing the envelope of of sound and the envelope of speed and Sam Shepard embodied that role in a way that uh, that I couldn't imagine anybody else doing. Uh, initially, he was that sort of um, swaggery guy, uh, but in that scene that we just played, Sam came out in you know what amounts to what looks very much like a Mercury astronaut outfit uh, to to fly this thing, and he was a good. Foot, ta- foot more taller than all of the other astronauts that were going to do this work. And the whole scene was, it was silver and shiny and glistening and he felt like this alien being uh, that just got landed to do this transcendent thing. Um, every time I've seen Sam Shepard, uh, he was that guy. He was this stoic, uh, rugged, um, uh, American West kind of figure that also had this warm sensitivity. Uh, you got the sense that um, uh, that he was always down on his luck a little bit, but endured. 
And um, and I just wonder, uh, and we've been, I've been wondering uh, since Monday, if the time for that is actually over in this country. Are we really at the point where the uh, the Glenn Scotts and the and the um, and the Sam Shepherds uh, are leaving us? Because I'm not seeing anything that replaces that. Uh, it's being replaced with a kind of cynicism. Uh, it's being replaced. Um, with something other, and uh, and I think that um, we will be longing that. All right, we shouldn't have let Rich go first because now it's going to sound like none of us have anything cool to say. <laughs> uh, that was really good. <laughs> I, although I will say, my recollection of the Chuck Yeager character is that he's contemptuous of what oh, yeah. the space program is. Uh, in fact, in Wolf's book, uh, the test pilots are all going, "A monkey's going to make the first flight." Uh, that's what they think about this: is that you really can't control the thing the mm-hmm. way they want to control a plane. They don't want to do this. They don't understand what all the fuss is about. You know, it's not really what test pilots do. Um, all right, Susan, you're up. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> Um, yes to all of that. I never saw Sam Shepard on stage, but his plays, and I'm thinking particularly Curse of the Starving Class, um, just felt rawly, R-A-W-L-Y, honest to me, as did he feel to me. And again, never met him. My husband saw him at a theater once in New York. That's as close as I ever came. But he struck me as an artist of incredible integrity. Like he spoke his truth and he never wavered from that. And I admire that very much. I I do wonder, the only two plays that I really know are True West and Fool for Love. And I saw the Sam Rockwell, Nina Aranda revival of Fool for Love on Broadway last year. And it did strike me as a play that First of all, I think moving these things to the Broadway stage may be kind of a mistake. I think Sam Shepard's mm-hmm. stuff often belongs on a smaller kind of downtown yeah. stage with a smaller audience. Or Long Wharf. Yeah. I mean just yeah. the, whatever the pressure is of a Broadway situation, things have to get blown up into a level that I think he is much more of that kind of minimalist writer who's going to work better in a, in, a, in a smaller environment. And I also think it's kind of an open question how well these – plays stand the test of time. I couldn't tell you 50 years from now whether people are, hmm. will still be doing these shows or not. I mean, it's, it sounds like you think so. I and, do, but and Rebecca, you just read Buried Child, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was not familiar with Sham Shepard other than I've seen him in stuff and I know his face. I loved him in Bloodline, didn't really know his name until Monday. And one of my beloved theater friends from Holy Cross had posted a status about, you know, she was mourning his loss and loved Buried Child, and she's the consummate expert on this stuff, so I decided I was going to read it, and I was bowled over by it. I really was not anticipating. I mean, it was Eugene O'Neill for the American industrial crisis. It was wonderful. It was complicated. It was heartbreaking. It was The writing was not overblown. It felt very true to the moment. The setting of the play itself seemed to match the dialogue in a way that I thought was really impressive. And I certainly will continue to explore more of Sam Shepard. It's it's too bad that it takes him passing away for me to discover him. But I am sorry I didn't do so sooner. Well, I want to circle back to Rich's point, too. First of all, one thing that I feel about Sam Shepard is that he is that actor who was often dropped in for, you know, an eight to ten minute performance in the middle of a movie, which makes you wish that the role were bigger as opposed to an awful mm-hmm. lot of actors. I just heard him uh, earlier today on Fresh Air where uh, she uh, had an old interview with him and he he talked about how he didn't like a lot of those parts. He felt as though they they were all the same person or they weren't they, – they didn't seem like real characters and stuff. But he 
you know, I don't know. I saw him. The last thing I've seen him in is a show movie called Midnight Express, uh, which came out I think last year. It's kind of a lot like the movie Starman, except that it's a kid instead of Jeff Bridges, and and he plays kind of a cult leader who's on for I don't know how much screen time he has. Not very much, but then you wish that he had more screen time, which yeah. is not that many actors make you do that. But Rich, I also liked your point that in a way, I don't know, like who's the long, tall, rugged man of few words who – there's a lot of men of few words, but they don't make you wish that they would tell you some more words. No, they don't have as – they don't have that thing that's – that lies behind that ruggedness. You know, they don't have the warmth. There's this – there's – and I believe that that's who he was. It wasn't what he was performing. You know, I think that he was that he was genuinely connected to those two sides. And um, I, I remember there was some scene that I'd seen somewhere. Um, it might have been out of a play where he was having a conversation, and it was a kind of difficult conversation. He was playing with a lighter, and uh, and there's just this glimpse of delight that just touched the corner of his mouth ever so slightly looking at that flame and then went back to the conversation. I mean, who does that? I mean, nobody's, nobody's bringing that, that kind of joy in these little tiny, you know, contained moments to Rich, I, I, can, I can think of one person who does that who? and that would be Mark Cuban in Sharknado 2. Let's <laughs> just, where he plays the president of the United States, let's hear a little bit of that. Thought your policy was to save the sharks. Nobody attacks my house. This time is personal. Yeah, that would be Mark. <laughs> that, would be that was the crappiest segue ever. <laughs> no, it was you the best. tried to take it was a the laugh. Best segue it was the ever. Best take segue. a laugh. That is, segue that is that is the oh, no. only way to introduce oh, Sharknado. Right. <laughs> That hurt me. So <laughs> my heart hurts. The provenance of that little clip, just so that you know, and this has come out this week in coverage uh, as we get ready to welcome Sharknado 5 into our lives, um, is that um, uh, in fact they had been in negotiations with Sarah Palin to play the president of the United States in that particular uh, uh, version, uh, iteration, whatever it was. Uh, it's either two or three. I can't remember which. And uh, talks broke down for whatever reason. Um, whereupon they approached a person named Donald Trump who seemed very interested at that point in playing the president of the United States in Sharknado. Just let that sink in for a second. And one and, would have thought that would have been the only way, the only path for President yeah. Trump to um, be. And if they had just reached out to him two weeks earlier. We could right. have all been saved. So anyway, Thanks, he, Sharknado. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he agreed to do it. They couldn't get in touch with him for a long time after he agreed to do it. Uh, they finally decided he was never going to get back to them. I think they are no str uh, strangers to rejection. Uh, so they concluded he just wasn't interested anymore. At that point, they hired Mark Cuban to play the president of the United States, at, United States, at which point Donald Trump, through his lawyer, Michael Cohn, threatened to sue them for hiring somebody other than Donald Trump to play the president of the United States and said that they were going to get everything back from them and, and hurt them in, in language that is very familiar to us now. They basically said that they were going to take everything that uh, the makers of Sharknado had uh, for this terrible offense. So um, – but that's not why I want to talk about Sharknado. Not exactly. Um, it is sort of true that there are a lot of people who really enjoy it. Carolyn Payne, who is a regular uh, panelist on The Nose, is uh, planning a big event this weekend. She's <laughs> trying to set up a backyard projector uh, somewhere. This is much more interesting to Carolyn than Game of Thrones or Ozark <laughs> or any other peak TV. And, and I sort of wonder about that. Like, you know, why – I wonder there's – there is – some joy in highly calculated badness. 
And, mm-hmm. and yeah, so you're about to say something. So that means you have to say something. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, no. well, you shouldn't have made that noise. <laughs> I, look, I Thank think, you. <laughs> I, I think that, that bad is a response to uh, – okay, so – this is going to be idiotic. I'm going a little too far out on this, right? We Reel love me that. back in. Um, I think that it's a response to um, to how to how much culture that we could be looking at things that are more highbrow through. It's a response to elitism. It's a response to to uh, thoughtfulness to an excess. And I do believe that that's feasible. You know, I think that we can analyze a thing and think about a thing and, you know, and and pontificate to a point that we kill a thing, you know, and um, and uh, I personally get a lot of delight from schlock. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it. I enjoy it. I move on. I don't talk about it on the radio. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's, it's I think a guilty pleasure. I think you're dead on, you know, that there is. There's a way in which, Rebecca, you know, there's a whole group of people who don't want to watch Game of Thrones and then watch it a second time and then listen to a podcast about it and then start What are you implying? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I'd certainly like my escapist TV once in a while. This is just not my cup of tea. I think it's a little over the top and a little too absurd. And I do think that there are better, worse things to be watching, if that makes sense. But, you know, I'm not about to knock what someone else enjoys. If you enjoy Sharknado, more power to you. I couldn't sit through more than five minutes of it. But, you know, everyone's got a different cup of tea. I think, Susan, there also might be an art to being bad intentionally. Like people do stuff that's really bad because they're trying to do something good and they don't know how. (laughs) We're very familiar with that. But these people have really gone out and tried to do this, right? I I went and uh, I I would rather pull out my eyes <laughs> with a pair of pliers, rusty pair of pliers, and eat my eyes right. than spend much time on Sharknado. And that I I don't get it. And I I probably have guilty pleasures. It just doesn't usually involve a screen with crap on it. I can't watch it. All I'm right. sorry. You should save your eyes in case you have to mail them in a jar to somebody. But Got it. Um, we are. Th- we can't explain to you what we mean by that. No. Um, all right. So we're going to take a little break. Instead, we're going to come back. We're going to recommend some things to you. You tell these sharks to stop biting these snakes on this plane. Today's show was produced by Pants Nato and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is not a shark. The part of Bill Curry was played by Fabio. A Monday show will be back with the scramble unless the grand jury calls us in. And now, back to Colin. All right. I've been asked by the people in the control room to issue a, a correction. Uh, it is Sharknado 3, in which Mark Cuban is the president, not Sharknado 2. We're not fake news here. You know, if we make a mistake, we, we fix it right away. Um, and Rebecca also pointed out that there's four, probably four alumni from The Apprentice who also have been in Sharknado. We essentially have elected Sharknado to run our country, if you think about it that way. Um, all right. So it's time to recommend some things. So let's start with Rebecca. Okay. Well, I read a great book this week. I read it in a day. It's called Slade House by David Mitchell. It is kind of a haunted house horror story. It's got a lot of strange, perverse humor in it that I was very compelled by. Um, It's technically considered like a long footnote to one of his other books, The Bone Clocks. He's one of those writers that all of his books have some sort of subtle connection. So it's also connected to Cloud Atlas and some of the themes in that. I've never read Mitchell before this week and I was 
really bowled over by it. You know, it's it's a rare day now with a busy schedule that I binge a book. <laughs> and I really did binge it, stayed up all night reading it. So I highly recommend that. My second recommendation was a new uh, artist I come across this weekend at the Newport Folk Festival, Billy Bragg. He's by no means new, but yeah. he was incredible. Mm-hmm. Talk about some good resistance music. So if you're looking to to get your get your activity going, I would highly recommend listening to some Billy Bragg in the morning and you'll uh, be resisting all day. Right all right. Susan? Okay, two things. One, um, please someone buy the Astrophysics for People in a Hurry book by Neil deGrasse Tyson and then explain it to me. I got two pages in, which I looked at it as Astrophysics for Dummies. I did not make it past two pages, and I very much want to understand astrophysics. The other thing is the Cardinals are coming to Boston uh, in a week or so, and uh, if you're in Boston on August 15th, please wear your Cardinals T-shirt so that I will not be the only one in Fenway Park. Go Cards. Oh, all right. Um, You get no help from me there. Uh, All right. Rich, what have you got for us? So uh, I have a two in one. Um, We've been having discussions in our office about the the role that design thinking can play in community organizing and trying – working on rejiggering one to fit into the – reengineering one to fit into the other. And uh, this weekend – um, uh, every time my kids turn a certain age, like five to seven, we watch two movies back to back and I make them watch it. And I'm going to be on my fifth time of making a kid watch this thing. And it sparks this sense of wonder and curiosity about the world in them. And that double feature will be, and it ties back to what we're working in the office on as well, The Right Stuff followed by Apollo 13. And I replay that scene in Apollo 13 where they have a table and all the stuff that could possibly be on the plane and all of the engineers that were sitting in their siloed spaces stand around the table and try to figure out what to do with a sock. And it's an inspiring, wonderful thing and everybody should go watch those two movies. So you do this with a different set of two movies every year? No, same two. Same two? Same two. With So I've got five kids. Yeah. Each time they turn somewhere between five and seven when I remember to do it, uh, we, <laughs> we watch these two movies wow. back to forth. and so back, cool. back to back. And my, uh, my oldest son, uh, for a couple of years there, watched uh, Apollo 13 every day, sometimes two or three times a day, wearing a little spacesuit. I'm so glad you said this because on the way in the drive over here, I was talking to Charlie Cameron, our new producer, who's 11, and I was talking to him about the right stuff, which he's never heard of. But I I was thinking that is a, I mean, it's a movie that really will hold hold up pretty well. I'm assuming. I mean, I just thought it was a terrific movie. I've probably seen it four or five times. Has a whole generation of actors who we then got to know in lots of other ways. I mean, just it's kind of an amazing cast too. So uh, I'll. uh, That's a great concept. I think other people should do that actually. Um, All right. So I, I can, by the way. Um, double down on Slade House uh, by by David Mitchell. Uh, I read it too. I read it in the spooky house up in Canada, which made me even more scared. Um, I scare easily anyway. Um, I'm going to recommend food. Uh, just generally, you should take nutrition, but also specifically. Uh, so Plainville isn't necessarily a place that you think of as a place to 
you know, it's not an entertainment mecca. Let's just put it that way. Uh, they have a restaurant there called El Popo. It's a Spanish restaurant. It was recommended by uh, Betsy Kaplan, our producer. Uh, it's always a good idea to go anywhere that Betsy Kaplan tells you to, although she may have told me to go certain places I'm not eager to go. Uh, and it's really a, a tremendous Spanish restaurant. It's just a little gem sitting in a strip mall. And it's really amazingly good. So El Pulpo uh, for really, really good Spanish food. And not like super expensive either. The other thing I am going to recommend is something that I sort of alluded to last week. I just want to kind of stress it one more time. I think as we all reach a certain age, this is not necessarily Rebecca's problem, but um, as we all reach a certain age, it's harder and harder to to seek out new music, but it's really worth doing. What I'm sort of going to recommend is building an hour into your week, just uh, using whatever means you can. I happen to be on the streaming service Tidal, which unfortunately these days only ever wants me to listen to Jay-Z because he has a new album out and he owns part of the company. But but if you go past that, they have all these sort of little play, suggested playlists and different ideas. And yeah, I mean, Wolfie is typing SZA out to me, which SZA is amazing. SZA is coming to Toad's Place, I think, in the yeah. fall. Yeah. Uh, but I discovered SZA that way. But that's just a nice example, though. I mean, there's just so much incredible stuff that's out there. And I think as we get older, we have our little collections and our playlists and stuff like that and the stuff that we know and trust. And we wind up missing a ton of stuff and we just think that it's all Katy Perry and Taylor Swift and therefore deserving of whatever contempt we might direct towards that. And it's just not. They're just really interesting, exciting musical people who are coming up with new stuff all the time. So whatever strategy you come up with, it doesn't matter, you know, but come up with a strategy. So like an hour a week, you're going to spend just sitting there listening to some music you've never heard before and then deciding, you know, as they used to say on the hip-hop radio station next door to the old radio station where I worked, they had a thing called Crunk It or Chunk It. So you can just, each song, you can decide either it's crunk or you're going to chunk it. Uh, that made a lot of sense back in the 90s. So it doesn't make any sense now. Uh, all right. So uh, <laughs> on that fine note, thanks to our wonderful panel today. It has been a great to talk to you guys. We'll be back. We'll be live from New Haven next week on The Nose. It'll be our final per, uh, performance ever in the Audubon Street Studios, which we are relinquishing, which we are eagerly relinquishing. It is the only radio stu studio in America that has no clock in it. So we might just bring a clock next week so we can do the only show we've ever had where we actually knew what time it was. Thanks so much to Susan Campbell. Uh, search out Searching for the American Dream in Frog Hollow when it is published. Rebecca Castellani, well, she wants you to go see whatever's playing at Bridge Street Live, probably in Canton, not SZA for now anyway, probably. <laughs> but And Rich Holland is principal and design director at CoLab. He just planned your weekend for you, those two movies, and we'll be back on Monday. Hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.